0: Daryl Hunt, at the age of 19, Hunt was convicted of the rape and murder of a woman named Deborah Sykes, despite the fact that there was no physical evidence tying him to the crimes. Even with zero evidence pointing to Hunt, he was sentenced by a jury to life in prison. In 1994, Hunt was actually cleared of the rape when DNA testing proved he had never committed that crime. Despite the rape being central to the overall crime, he spent an additional nine years in prison until a man named Willard Brown confessed to both acts. So after 19 years of life in prison, Hunt was finally exonerated in 2004. Richard Jewell. Richard Jewell was actually never convicted of any crime, but in 1996, he became one of the most infamous men on the planet that's because when a bomb exploded at the olympic games in atlanta it was jewel whom the fbi said was the chief suspect in this act of terror some of you remember this moment at the time jewel was a 34 year old security guard he'd spotted a suspicious package in the olympic village and reported it to the authorities Shortly afterwards, it exploded, killing one person and injuring more than 100 others. Basically, because Jewel had done his job, he became the prime suspect in the bombing and was quickly villainized. He was cleared of any charges in October, which was just three months later, that same year, but that was well after he'd been found guilty in the court of public opinion. Dewey Bozella In 1977, Dewey Bozella was an 18-year-old kid from a rough neighborhood who inexplicably found himself to be the prime suspect in the murder of a 92-year-old woman. Despite the fact that there was not a shred of evidence tying him to the murder, and the two key witnesses were known criminals who had changed their stories, Bozella was sentenced to a minimum of 20 years in Sing Sing, one of the most notorious Prisons in America. Bozella was retried in 1990 and offered the chance to go free if only he would admit to his guilt and remorse. While some may have jumped at the chance for freedom, Bozella refused to admit to something he did not do and was reconvicted. The Innocence Project caught wind of his case. That's where these articles are from. And he tracked down some evidence, which eventually resulted in Bozella being set free in 2009, some 32 years later. Have you ever been falsely accused? Not to this degree, maybe. Not that it would require prison time. or Not that you'd lose in the court of widespread public opinion. But have you ever been blamed for something that you didn't do? Of course, this is true for all of us at any given level, small or large. If you're a kid, it might be your brother and sister that constantly points the finger at you, right? Or if you're an adult, maybe as a neighbor or co-worker that was trying to get ahead, some acquaintance somewhere, um, maybe it was your boss that accused you of something you just didn't do, or maybe you are the boss and the employee has blamed you something that's not true about you, but something where it's cost you Your reputation, at least in the eyes of some, some small circle. Something where your integrity has been questioned. Something where your character has been challenged. Something where your name has been tarnished. Something that you didn't do, but it hurt just the same. However big or small that may be in your life. You know, we can feel it, right? We we can sense it. It's like the injustice of it. Gosh, we read those articles. Justice of it makes this angry, deep-seated frustration. It's just not right. It's, it's just not okay. I thought about this some um, in my own life this week, and I spent some time with it because it takes a little while to kind of go there and remember details and stories, but pretty soon, several moments over the course of my life came to mind for me. And it was interesting because as they came to mind, all the emotions that were present back then, they... Those emotions, they filled my heart again. I, I could feel it. A time when I was accused of cheating. A time when I was blamed for the failure of someone else. A time when I was accused of turning my immediate family against my extended family. A time when I was accused of taking advantage of an older couple. A time when, it, when a guy spent some time over the course of several months lying about me and he was so convincing and so adamant about his statement that over the course of that time some of my own friends ended up kind of rallying to his side and they called me the liar that's actually happened to me twice Man, it's painful difficult accusations difficult situations difficult circumstances difficult relationships it's just hard And when you think about those things, you you can just kind of feel the tension climbing up your spine and, and into your shoulders. You can feel it, you can sense it. I want you to know this as we open to this text for today. That's the context, that's the setting. King David has been falsely accused. His integrity is being questioned. His reputation is on the line. His relationships are crumbling His world has been turned upside down by the words of somebody else and David's response here is extraordinary. He finds the antidote to false accusation and he finds it in a place that we don't often think to look. So I want you to open your Bible with me to Psalm chapter 26. Psalm 26, we're continuing in our summer series, our study, the walk of wisdom. We know that David is the author of of this psalm, we don't know this. We we don't know who's making the false accusation and we don't know what the accusation is. A lot of scholars argue that this is Absalom, his oldest son at the end of his life who's trying to take his throne. Don't know that for sure. We just know his response to it. And so I'm gonna invite you to follow along with me as I read chapter 26 of the psalms beginning in verse one. Here's what David says. Vindicate me, O Lord, For I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in you, the Lord, without wavering. Examine me, O Lord, and try me. Test my mind and my heart. For your loving kindness is before my eyes and I have walked in your truth. I do not sit with deceitful men, nor will I go with pretenders. I hate the assembly of evildoers and I will not sit with the wicked. I shall wash my hands in innocence and I will go about your altar O Lord, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and declare all your wonders. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not take my soul away along with sinners, nor my life with men of bloodshed, in whose hands is a wicked scheme and whose right hand is full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity, redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on a level place. In the congregations, I shall bless the Lord. I'm gonna make three observations this morning, three places that David turns when he is wrongfully accused. And I'll just say this to kind of set the tone for our time together this morning. The deeper I got into this text, the heavier it felt to me. And I think it'll feel that way over the course of our study of it. It's hard. It's hard to go there. It's hard to think about this kind of pain in our own life. We don't like to do that. It's, it's hard to think about how to respond well to it. These are complicated situations and circumstances. But I want you to know this. As I got to the end and stepped away from it, I found it to be incredibly hopeful as well. It really is. And I think you'll see that over the course of our study together. I, I think you'll see that while David is responding specifically to accusation, I think this is true, I think you'll find that anything that you're facing, any difficult situation, difficult circumstance, what David does here, specifically where he turns here, it will apply to your situation as well. So here's the first observation with all that's going on out here in David's life words that are coming at him that are hurtful, allegations, accusations, the relationships that are crumbling and difficult, all that's going on out here in his circumstances. Here's what David does first. David turns inward first. He he looks at his own heart, his own heart before the Lord. And in fact, a false accusation in this case, it leads to an honest Appraisal of his own heart. Now, I want you to see this verses 1 and 2. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I've walked in my integrity, trusted in you without wavering. Examine me, O Lord, verse 2, and try me. Test my mind and my heart. There it is. Now, even the word mind here, this is a unique word for mind. Not the the word that's used in the Hebrew every time for mind, but in this case, mind is actually a bit confusing. It's more than mind, it's not just mind. In the Hebrew, it means, it literally stands for kidneys. It's figurative for the inner person, my conscience, the place where I choose between right and wrong, my soul. In fact, we see something similar in verse 9 where David says, Do not take my soul away with sinners. Same idea. Here's what David's saying here. Lord, when I look deep down in here, this is what I see. I have walked with integrity. I have trusted you without wavering. Now notice that the verbs are past tense. David begins his self-assessment by saying this is what has been true of me. And then as it continues in the psalm, he's gonna say this is what has been true of me, this is what is true of me in the present, and this is what I hope will be true of me in the future. We're gonna go there in just a minute, but I wanna make one comment before we do so we don't get off course right here though it could appear this way, this is not self-righteous boasting. It's not. The word for integrity there, it it doesn't mean sinless. It doesn't mean faultless. It doesn't mean blameless. It's actually better to think about the word integrity in terms of wholeness. David's saying, even when I disobey, which I do, I turn to you, Lord, for forgiveness, and you make me whole. You, You make me whole. It's by your grace that I'm made whole. I am integrated or I have integrity. My heart is not divided. One God kind of amen. It's not self-righteous boasting and it's also not clearly justification to his accuser. Nothing about what he says here goes horizontal. Nothing goes toward his accuser. This is entirely a vertical conversation a private conversation between him and God alone. Okay, so let's step back into the text, verses three through eight. Now, David's language changes to both present and future tense in these next four or five verses. This is what's true of me now. First part of verse three. Your loving kindness is currently before my eyes. Verse four, I do not sit. Right now, don't sit with deceitful men. Verse Oh, sorry, that was verse four. Here's verse five. Verse five, I hate, present tense, the assembly of evildoers. Verse eight, I love, present tense, the habitation of your house. Not just the description of David's life in the past, but here it is in the present. And then same verses, second part, he talks about the future. This is what will be true of me. This is what I hope will be true of me in the future. Second part of verse four. Verse four nor will I go, future tense, with pretenders. Verse five, second part, I will not sit with the wicked. Verse six, second part, I will go about your altar instead, O Lord. It is David's present comfort and it is his future hope to act based on what he knows to be true about his heart relationship with God. His integrity, regardless of what people say, is not found out here, it's found in here. You see, there's a big difference between integrity and reputation. We we just want to make these two things one and the same. I do in my own life. I've thought about this for a long time. It's like just those two things should always fit together. They're one and the same. They're not. Clearly they're not. Integrity is what happens in here. It, it, it's something that I can work on. It's something that I can have. It's something that the Spirit of God can develop in me and preserve in me over a lifetime. It is about my heart relationship with God. Out in the light, in the dark, wherever I am, that's where integrity is found. Reputation, reputation, it, it, it doesn't, we don't have any control over reputation whatsoever. No matter what's true about me in here, no matter what I say or what I do, people can say whatever they want, and they do. You see, I can fool you, you can fool me in one of two ways. Either my reputation is phenomenal in the community, but I'm actually not a man of integrity. That's actually not true with my heart. We see this almost every week with a politician these days where what we believe to be true about them, that they're working for the good of the state or the county or the country actually comes up that their integrity doesn't match up. We see it all the time. So I can fool you that way, or I can fool you this way, that my reputation out in the community It's just kind of mixed. Name's a bit tarnished. It's just kind of mixed out there. But actually what's true about my own life or what's true about your own life is that you have and are walking in integrity. David seems to understand that just because somebody says it out there, it doesn't make it true, see, See, David understands that that no matter what, what's actually true of him is true in his own heart relationship with God, regardless of what people say. Can I just say this? This is incredibly difficult for me. This whole text, this whole idea is incredibly, I think it's difficult for most of us. When falsely accused, when blamed for something I didn't do, when someone tackled my character, honestly, if they're right or they're wrong, here's my natural inclination. It's not to go in here. It's to go out there. I'll tell you what'll fix this is vindication. That's what'll fix this. Justice prevails, that'll fix this problem. When my reputation is restored, that's how this thing gets fixed. I can't help but go there. It's true for all of us. That's where we naturally go. That's our inclination. When accused, my eyes go outward, not inward. Not so with David. Now, David looks to see what's true about his own heart before God. And get this, he's steadied by what he finds there. You see, it seems that when our focus, regardless of our circumstances, is on our own heart before God, then what follows here in verses three through eight will be the description of our lives. We'll live separate, set apart from those who stand against God. I made a comment about Psalm 1 two weeks ago when we were talking about Psalm 119 in here. It applies here as well. Psalm 1 reads in the first verse, blessed, remember we said blessed means happy. Happy is the man who walks Not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. We get that in our minds, but it's like, why is that? And why is that man happy when he doesn't pursue those things? Well, I love the way C.S. Lewis answers the question. He says it this way. He says, it's not because we are too good for evildoers. It's in fact because we are not good enough. You see, we need God's word to center us, to steady us. We, we need God's word to sustain us. Blessed, happy is the man who centers his life on the truth of God's word about him. And David is simply saying, I'm that man. It's what has been true of me, what is true of me, and what will be true of me in the future. So David looks inward first, and second observation, he looks upward, doesn't he? A false accusation leads to divine examination. The word vindicate in verse one literally means to judge, to judge. David's saying, Lord, when I look in here, this is what I see to be true of me, but you, O God, you be the judge. Examine me, test me, try me. Is there any truth to what my accusers say? You know my thoughts, you know my words, you know my actions, you know my motivations, my inclinations, my tendencies. Oh Lord, what is it that you see? David says something very similar in Psalm 139 verse 23. He writes, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting rather than pursuing his accuser rather than seeking vindication rather than trying to fight for or restore his reputation David goes vertical he has the courage to stand before God with nothing to hide he has the courage to allow any vindication to come from God alone And notice this, he doesn't ask God to judge his enemies. He doesn't ask God to clear his name. He doesn't ask God to make his life better. No, what matters most to David is not what other people think, but it's what his God thinks of him. What a great principle for us. That we might live our lives in such a way that what matters most to us is not what others think, not what others say, not what others think they see in us, but what God thinks, says, and how He views His own children, who are in fact restored and made whole by Him. See, that's very, 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 very different. And I think this is where we get hung up. I'll say it in my own life, I'll just make it personal. I, I tend to care so much about what's going on out here, horizontal, what, what people are saying about me, what they think about me, that I'm not very aware of what's going on here. Not very cognizant of that when I'm all focused out here. Here's what I mean when I'm listening to voices out here, this is just true. It's virtually impossible to hear the voice of God, it's just reality. Those voices drown this one out. Now, the flip is also true. When I'm listening for the voice of God, these voices dissipate. These voices get drowned out as, as well. They really do. They lose their oomph, their power. And the only way that I know in my own life to to kind of flip that tendency is is simply to practice it. I have a journal that I write in often, and when I'm writing in my journal, I, I typically write about what I'm thinking or feeling. It's something horizontal. And I try to write what I'm feeling because I'm not very good at that. I've I've told stories before about just kind of a disconnect over the course of my life between my head and my heart. I'm trying to integrate those things. And so I write a lot about what I'm thinking or feeling, these horizontal kinds of things. Generally what comes out is horizontal circumstances, difficult relationships, fear, anxiety, just just the stuff on life, just what's going on. And so what I'll do is I'll write that on the left side of the page in, in, in my journal. And then I'll take some time when I kind of get that on paper. It just helps me to write it. I'm not saying you have to journal to be a great Christian. It just helps me this way. I I write it. When I get that written down on the left side of the page, then I'll just take some time to write what's true on the right side of the page. What's true about me, what's true about God, and what's true about my relationship with God. It it sounds uh, something like this. This was written a few months ago in the context of a difficult relational conflict in my life. I wrote up here at the top, what am I feeling? Anxiety and fear. Feel weight pushing down at the top of my chest and on top of my heart. My heart feels like it's beating fast. Feel disconnected from what I'm doing in the present because of all that's going on up here and in my chest. I felt this feeling before and I list some places where I've felt it before and then I just wrote, it's amazing to me that it escalates to this level of anxiety almost every time I have this kind of conflict. Afraid of being missed, I'm afraid of being misunderstood. I'm afraid of being seen as something I'm not, Here, reputation in that, horizontal. I'm afraid of tense, conflictual relationship, ongoing. I'm afraid of being wrong, afraid of retribution that if I engage this, it will cost me something. I want to run, feel angst in my soul, I want to withdraw and disengage from this relationship. That's all left side. Here's what I wrote on the right. It just put at the top what's true. I haven't done anything wrong in in this case. That's not always true, but it was this case here. It's okay to have conflict, just doesn't feel okay with them. This is not how healthy relationships work. I can't control it, fix it, or manage it. Can't. I can live with it because I can trust God. He is in control. Therefore, I can walk in truth and I can walk in grace. I don't have to carry their response. Their reaction is not my fault. What God says about me is what matters most. And when I go there in my own life and I invite the Spirit of God to examine my heart, I just want you to know this, his love, his goodness, his word, his promises, all the things that are true about God that end up on the right side of that page, ultimately they dwarf the left side of the page. He makes me whole. He restores my perspective. He helps me to own what I need to own. He sustains me. He revives me. He steadies my walk regardless of my circumstances. He does. You see, David, he looks inward. David looks upward. And finally, David looks forward. And we'll just look at this briefly, but that's the third observation. A false accusation leads to a humble plea for the future. Look at verse 9. Not take my soul away along with sinners, nor my life with men of bloodshed, in whose hands is a wicked scheme, and whose right hand is full of bribes. Verse 11. But as for me, I will walk in integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. Said another way God, please separate me from the wicked, for I realize that my life and my eternity is in your hands. God, would you help me to walk with integrity for it is you and you alone, your redemption and your grace that makes me whole and will make me whole ultimately with the sending of your son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. David is looking forward. If we had any doubts about David's self-righteousness or arrogance, they're dispelled here. David's Aware of his need, and his humble plea is that his soul will not ultimately find the fate of sinners. Now, notice again here that nothing about David's plea has anything to do with his accuser. Nothing. It's not for God to set things right today. It's not even for God to help him in this present time of trouble. It is in this case that God will spare him in the end. He's thinking forward, moving forward, away from this present moment to a moment that is far more important and far more significant than even this one is or feels right now. In Psalm 51.1, David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my sins. Which, of course, is exactly what God the Father sends his son, Jesus, through the lineage of David to do. David's words here are prophetic for his own life and for ours. How do the godly respond when falsely accused? Well, by looking inward, taking an honest assessment of your own heart. By looking upward, it's bold invitation for divine examination. And by looking forward, making a humble plea for God's ultimate redemption and his grace. That's the antidote. When everything in us believes that the only way to make this thing right is to clear my name, Everything else just wants. The only solution is for justice to prevail in the here and now. David, King David, he turns elsewhere and he finds the very thing that all of us are looking for. He calls it in verse 12, level ground. Look there at verse 12. My foot stands on a level place. And David lived in Israel, obviously, he lived in a country, a territory that was rocky and hilly. David spent much of his life traversing these rocky hillsides as a shepherd as a young man, he did it herding sheep, chasing lost sheep. as he came to his kingship, anointed by the prophet Samuel. It was Saul and his enemies that chased him across these these regions of country. He spent nights in caves, nights on the side of the cliff there 's not much security, not much rest in a cave on the side of a mountain, not much hope, not much confidence when you know your next step could actually be your last. David knew what it felt like to live on uneven ground. Even in his, his later years, his son Absalom chased him from the throne. He, he did the same thing that he did in his early life, traversing this countryside. He knows what it's like. He knows what it's like physically. He knows what it's like geographically and Certainly here, he knows what it's like spiritually. When we face a difficult situation, circumstances out of our control, broken relationship, false accusation, opposition from any side in any way, when we face that in our lives, the ground feels uneven, doesn't it? it? feels like the rug's been pulled out from underneath us. Our footing is shaky at best. Our, our rest, it, it feels like sleeping on the side of a cliff. It's easy to lose hope, it's easy to lose confidence, and it's a slippery slope to vindication, retaliation, and reputation. We need level ground. We need solid footing when we're there. A place where our footing is secure, no loose rocks, no slippery surfaces, where our confidence, in fact, is in something bigger than the current situation. David finds it. He finds it when he looks inward, when he looks upward, and when he looks forward. And get this, David finds it even when nothing about his circumstances have changed. Nothing. Nothing about his relationships, Nothing about the accusations. God doesn't even respond directly in Psalm 26. Nothing about David's current situation has changed. And he finds level ground. And here's what I would submit to you. I would suggest that life, this side of eternity, that this right here is life at its fullest. What? This is life at its best. This is life at its most satisfying. Here's why. Peace, rest, confidence, hope, even joy, regardless of our circumstances. That's why. So what we always ask the question when we're faced with a situation like this, a difficult circumstance, some hurtful words, when the rug feels like it's been pulled out from underneath you and you're trying to regain your Maybe you're there right now. Where will you turn to find level ground? Will you go horizontal or will you go vertical? Will your plea be to be made right before men or will your plea be to be made right before God? Will you live for today or will you live in light of eternity to come? The other night we were sitting in an elder meeting and I'll quit here. Um, And we were talking about uh, some things that are just, we're so excited about that God's been so gracious to us in ways that God's blessing the church and lives that are changing. We celebrated that and we spent some time talking about some things that we need to address, some challenges before us in this new season, some things that need revitalization. There's just great energy around this conversation. We spent about three hours talking that night about where God might be leading us. And at the end of the time, I I just looked at the guys and I just said to them, you know, when I come to a weekend and I'm getting ready to teach, there is a sense of utter desperation in me. That Spirit of God, if you don't make your word clear, if you don't change hearts, this is a meaningless exercise. It's just worthless. And I just trust you to do that. I'm dependent upon you to do that. But in my own life, there's times when in leadership and organizational leadership and where we're going, decisions we're making that I don't, I don't feel that sense of desperate dependence. I was sharing that with the guys. And so I just said, Hey, can we pray tonight as we close just for that kind of desperate dependence? And we, need, we do this a lot as an elder team, but I just needed it that night in, in that way. And so I just said, would you guys join me? Let's pray that way for us and for our church, that, that, that God would give us wisdom, that he'd guide us, that he'd lead us, that we'd trust the spirit of God in us, what to do, where to go, all that. And, and so we did. We, we just spent some time praying that way. And it was a sweet, sweet time for us as a team. And my thought on the so what is simply this. is it comes to this, King David, this is the same kind of desperate plea, same kind of desperate dependence God, you are the only one who can give me level ground. Only one who can make my footing sure in the midst of my circumstances. And so I just wanna invite you as we close to pray that same way in your own life. Whatever you're facing right now, would you pray for a desperate dependence upon God to provide you the footing, the level ground that you need? Take just a minute right now to do that and then I'll close this and send us out. Father, may we be a people who are desperately dependent upon you, even when we don't think we need you. Dependent upon you in all things, great joy, great gratitude, and in all difficult circumstances that we face. May we trust that you are the one who sets our feet on level ground. Trust it fully. And when everything in us wants to go horizontal, help us to look inward, upward and forward. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you stand with me? I wanna send us out with Paul's words. He writes a very similar thing to what David wrote here in Psalm 26 in 1 Corinthians chapter four. These are words to the church in Corinth. This is an interaction between him and the leaders in Corinth. And here's what he says to them. But to me, Paul, it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you. Or by any human court for that matter. In fact, I don't even fully examine myself. Yet I am examined by the Lord. Therefore, Do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes forward thinking. Wait until the Lord comes who will bring both light to the hidden things in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts and then and only then each man's praise will come to him from God. Vertical. May we be a people whose praise comes to us from God. And may we be a people until that day comes that the voice of praise on our lips would be unto his glory alone. Go in peace. We'll see you next week.